Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do terrific work, and you can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We just recorded uh, his segment because he is off to Prague, so uh, had to catch an airplane. But it's uh, up-to-the-date information about what's happening around the globe. We'll also visit with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll talk about China's great philosophers as uh, right now the current philosophy of the Chinese Communist Party in alignment with them? I don't think so. And we'll also visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His latest, it's called No Problem. It is July the 18th, and on this day in 1940, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who took office in 1933 as America's 32nd president, was nominated for an unprecedented third term. He's a Democrat, and he would eventually be elected to uh, record four terms in office, the only U.S. president to serve more than two terms. He was born on January 30, 1882, in Hyde Park, New York, and went on to serve as the New York State Senator from 1911 to 1913, Assistant Secretary of State, uh, 1913 to 1920, and Governor of New York from 1929 to 32. In 32, he defeated incumbent Herbert Hoover, to be elected president for the first time. During his first term, Roosevelt enacted his New Deal social programs, which aimed at lifting America out of the Great Depression. Of course, he ran on a ticket of austerity. <laughs> kind of ironic. Anyhow, in 1936, he won his second term in office by defeating Kansas Governor Alf Landon in a landslide. On July the 18th, 1940, Roosevelt was nominated for a third presidential term as the Democrat Party convention in Chicago. The president received some criticism for running again because there was an unwritten rule in American politics that no U.S. president should serve more than two terms. The custom dated back to the country's first president, George Washington, who in 1796 declined to run for a third term in office. <clears throat> Nevertheless, uh, Roosevelt believed it was his duty to continue serving and lead his country through the mounting crisis in Europe where Hitler's Nazi Germany was on the rise. The president went on to defeat uh, Republican Wendell Wilkie in the general election, and his third term in the office was dominated by American involvement in the Second World War. In 1944, when the war was still in progress, Roosevelt defeated New York Governor Thomas Dewey for a fourth term in office. However, the president was unable to complete the full term, on April the 12th, 1945, he suffered uh, from various health problems for years. He died at age 63 in Warm Springs, Georgia. He was succeeded by uh, Vice President Harry S. Truman. On March the 21st, 1947, Congress passed the 22nd Amendment to the United States Constitution, which stated that no person could be elected to office of the president for more than two times. The amendment was ratified by the required number of states in 1951. Roosevelt was uh, credited with uh, tremendous uh, financial success in bringing us out of the 
a Great Depression, but the fact is that the pro process and the programs that he implemented were really uh, <clears throat> it prolonged the uh, Great Depression. It didn't uh, make it uh, end. Second World War, though, helped substantially. An armed citizen shot and killed a man armed with a rifle who had started shooting people at Greenwood Park Mall in Greenwood, Indiana. Uh, this is according to Sunday, according to police. Three people were killed and two were wounded in addition to the shooter being killed. The person who stopped the attempted mall massacre was a 22-year-old man lawfully carrying a handgun who was called by the police the real hero of the day. No description of the dead shooter was released except that he looked like an adult male with a rifle and several magazines with ammunition. A new Indiana law allows constitutional carry for the handguns in public went into effect on July 1st. The real hero of the day is the citizen that was lawfully carrying a firearm in the food court and was able to stop the shooter almost as soon as he began, he said. One of the uh, wounded was a 12-year-old girl with a minor injury. The other victims ranged from 20s to 30s, but all were one were female. The shooting took place around 6 p.m., just about the time that the mall was closing. So wanted to do a little shout-out to, uh, and, you know, underscore the fact that all this uh, trying to curtail the Second Amendment Actually, the first responders are the people that are at the scene. It's not the police. And we can be very grateful that this guy had concealed carry and was able to stop the shooter. Although the virus tragically continues to take lives, some degree of COVID-19 prevalence is likely on our new normal. Hence, we, why just 1% of voters now list COVID-19 as their priority issue it no longer ranks in the top 10. The top three priorities for Americans going to the election are inflation, 33%, gas prices, 15%, and the economy, 9%. But the Biden administration is simply unwilling to let go of the emergency and its emergency powers. The president is reportedly planning on extending the pandemic emergency declaration originally implemented in January 2020 under President, uh, former President Donald Trump. Yet again, it was after it was set to expire on July the 15th. So why the extension of the declaration, even though the emergency is clearly long over? And why is that? Well, the White House says it's doing this in part to preserve essential regulatory exceptions implemented under the emergency authorization, such as increased telehealth availability and the approval of vaccines and treatments under emergency use authorizations. And those are indeed important reforms, but according to the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration could preserve all of them using other executive authorities, even if the president did allow the emergency powers to lapse. The real reason uh, why this uh, White House won't give up the temporary emergency powers is much more sinister and partisan. It's simple. The uh, forever emergency status quo is allowing them to keep millions of ineligible folks on welfare programs such as Medicaid and food stamps. In March 2020, Congress barred states from kicking ineligible people off Medicaid rolls. During the emergency, in return for more federal funding, the Wall Street Journal editorial board explains Medicaid enrollment has ballooned to 95 million. 30% of Americans are now enrolled from 71 million in December 2019. Can you believe that? Trying to push the welfare state any way you can. Another reason Congress in March suspended food stamp work requirements during the emergency and sweetened benefits to states that maintained their own declarations. As of April, uh, <clears throat> 41.2 million Americans were receiving food stamps. 
an average of 228 per month per person, which is about 4.4 million more than about than during the pandemic. Wow. We can all have a broader debate about the vast welfare state, but we're all supposed to agree that legally ineligible people should not be receiving taxpayer dollars, yet clearly many are. According to the Foundation for Government Accountability, which, by the way, I proudly serve as a board member, 20%, yes, one in five of Medicaid dollars are improperly spent, and that was before the pandemic and all the rule uh, removals. So it's entirely safe to say that by preserving the emergency declaration, President Joe Biden is keeping millions of illegally ineligible people plugged into the welfare state. This is costing taxpayers countless billions, and the White House is only able to get away with it because of the abuse of emergency powers. And I I still underscore uh, more jabs can be given. Big Pharma, Pfizer, and the others can be able to give these jabs, the vaccine, without accountability to adults. And I think that's a crime as well. That's because of the emergency authorization. But waiting on a branch government to secede or to cede an expansion of its powers voluntarily is often a fool's errand. As Nobel Prize winning economist F.A. Hayek once put it, emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have been eroded. And once they're suspended, it's not difficult for anyone who has presumed uh, emergency powers to see it to it that the emergency will persist. Let that sink in, huh? So we can't simply hope that this problem will go away on its own. Biden will not cede his emergency powers any time before the end of his term unless the public rises up and demand that he does. Until we do, the president continues abuse of his authority and will keep bleeding taxpayers dry. So word to the wise, we should end this emergency authority as soon as possible, perhaps in January 2023, after, we, uh, after the conservatives take control of the House of Representatives and hopefully the Senate. Democrats and climate activists were left outraged on Thursday when Senator Joe Manchin refused to go forward with his party's economic package, citing its climate and energy programs as well as its raising of taxes on wealthy Americans. His decision, Manchin that is, to pull the plug comes after weeks of negotiations with Democrats to craft a bill Why is this putting a smile on my face that he would uh, support in seven months after he killed President Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan? Political headlines are of no value to the millions of Americans struggling to afford groceries and gas as inflation soars to 9.1 percent, said Sam Runyon, a spokesperson for Manchin. Senator Manchin believes it's time for leaders to put political agendas aside, reevaluate and adjust to the economic realities the country faces to avoid taking steps that fuel this inflation fire. Well said. Senator Manchin has not walked away from the table, she added. So in other words, they're going to continue to talk about this. According to the New York Times, Manchin's rejection of the plan shattered President Biden's ambitious climate agenda, which aimed to be the largest single federal investment in American history towards increasing the toll of climate change. Without action by Congress, it will be possible to meet impossible to meet uh, Mr. Biden's goal of cutting U.S. emissions roughly in half by the end of the decade, decade said the Times. This target was aimed at keeping the planet to stabilize the climate at about 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming compared to pre-industrial levels. What a crock. (laughs) What a crock. This is all based on theories. It's not based on scientific fact. As of Thursday morning, Democrats were optimistic they reached a deal with Manchin only to have their hopes dashed at the last minute. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and his staff were reportedly shell-shocked 
after believing uh, Manchin would deliver. Many were seething with anger at Mr. Manchin, said the Times. They criticized him for not having stuck with his negotiations. And while watering down a package that at one stage would have been sufficient to put a a steep dent in emissions and only uh, fossil fuel projects that could cut climate goals. Senator Ron Wyden, he's the Democrat from Oregon, told the Times that Manchin may have helped sabotage the last chance to prevent the most catastrophic and costly effects of climate change. What a dunce. We can come back to another decade and forestall hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, in economic damage and undo the inevitable human toll, Wyden told the outlet. If we can't move forward as we would hope, we need to salvage as much of this package as possible. The expression that failure is not an option is overused, but failure is really not an option here, he said. Leah Stokes, a professor of environmental policy at the University of California, Santa Barbara, reportedly sobbed on Thursday night upon learning Manchin's reversal after she put in months of work into helping Democrats craft craft climate legislation. The stakes are so high, she said, it's just infuriating that he's condemning our own children. Uh, Tyrion Suddenfield, the senior senior, uh, vice president for government affairs at the League of Conservation Voters, said there's no words that are suitable for printing in the New York Times of how appalled and outraged we are. So as you can see, Democrats are all tied up in their under- underwear about uh, Manchin not going along. But he's, he's his own man. He does his own thinking. And we're happy he does. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. 
everyone. Every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CallYourSeniorCenter.org. That's CallYourSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Call Your Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Into worldwide climate change types of action. Well, I'm about to bring you uh, Mark Schulman's segment. We just recorded it at about 6.15 this morning, so here we go. Thanks so much for joining us here this morning. It's brought to you by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Reed. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, a terrific multimedia website for kids of all ages, including you and I. I hope you check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So let's start off with uh, the big news, of course, is the Middle East trip uh, by the President of the United States going off to Saudi Arabia to, and visiting uh, Israel as well. Uh, what are your thoughts and comments? I mean, it was a trip that was mostly for show. Um, it didn't really accomplish a lot, but these trips never really do do, a, do accomplish a lot. They usually show the flag show, so to speak. Um, reestablished some sort of new relationship with Saudi Arabia, for better or for worse, um, and with the <clears throat> the Gulf states trying to create some sort of an alliance against Iran, where there's sort of reluctance. On one hand, they fear Iran. On the other hand, they fear being an enemy of Iran. So there's this careful dance that's going on. Also managed to negotiate some further uh, easing of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia agreed to allow overflights for Israeli um, airlines that are going to the Far East, for instance, which will cut almost three hours out of flights that go from Israel to places like Thailand and India and those places. Mm -hmm. So that's a positive step forward, and I think you also agreed to allow Israeli Arabs to come directly to Saudi Arabia for the Hajj, uh, which is something also that until now they've had to travel to Jordan, and then from Jordan they traveled on. So some some accomplishments. His, his visit to Israel was also, they had a, a joint Jerusalem declaration, which basically said the United States is committed to stopping Iran from getting nuclear weapons and or, and committed to Israel's defense and cooperation between the two countries, sharing of technologies. Today a lot of that technology is going the other way. It used to be from the United States to Israel. Now a lot of it's Israel to the United States, but that's a whole other story. So that was also part of the trip. Um, you know, uh, if, if, you had to, if you had to push me, I would give the trip a, a B rating. Let's put it that way. Uh-huh. Um, nothing, no, no big disasters, no big problems, nothing fantastic. Well, the, one of the expectations that was created was to have the uh, Saudis pump more oil and make more oil available to lower the price here around the world. Uh, it looks to me like they said, well, we're going to do that by 2027, but uh, probably didn't indicate anything material is going to happen in the near future. Well, but look, this, this, the oil markets themselves have been speaking, right? I mean, the price of gas is now 
dropped to below four dollars a gallon uh, when it was pushing close to you know over five only four or five weeks ago. Um, so the, the markets have spoken in their own way. A lot of it was with some speculation and things being out of out of tack between supply and demand, and people made a lot of money that way. Um, and of course, the bigger problem actually for for most of the world right now is the issue of gas um, in terms of Russian gas and being dependent on Russian gas because oil is very fungible. In other words, wherever it is in the world, you can move it and trade it, and mm -hmm. it's very easy to deal with, with oil, as silly as that sounds, right? We're talking about huge, huge tankers, but it is easy to deal with oil. Um, gas is a much more problematic uh, matter, um, particularly you ha either have to have pipelines in place or you have to uh, create what, what's called liquid natural gas, which requires a whole process, and then put it into special tankers and then move them overseas and then on then do the opposite process on the other end. Um, and some of that exists. Um, and the United States is now starting to export a significant amount of gas to Europe, um, but not enough to, to make up yet for what the potential Russian shortfall. Yeah, I don't know about you, but we're beginning to see our heating bills and uh, cooling bills uh, escalate over the last couple of months, and it's got to be really right, terrible. Right, but, but you, know, you now see them starting to go down. In other words, yeah. it peaked about a month ago. Um, and speculation and everything else. And at this point, if you look at the day-to-day -day spot market on oil, it's down considerably from where it was two months ago. Um, the price of gasoline across, across the United States has come down, on average, at least 50 cents a gallon now over the last four or five weeks. So um, a lot of that is, you know, the, miss, the misses of the market, the fear of the, fear of the, the Ukrainian war, um, the fear of shortages, which always creates higher prices and perhaps um, advanced signal of recession too because if business is slowing down which it appears to be uh, there's gonna be a less demand for oil as well could be but it's not look, it's not coming from the aviation sector i can tell you that right. <laughs> um, and, and it's not coming from people traveling on their cars for summer vacation yeah so i think you know it's a big question you know one of the problems we have right now and this is worldwide is we were really good at predicting the economic situation in normal times. But because of how uh, COVID has changed things around and changed how people live and people work and everything else like that, um, it, it's not at all clear where things are standing at the moment. In other words, fighting inflation, are we fighting inflation by raising interest rates or was that yesterday's battle and, you know, is inflation being caused by something that has nothing to do with interest rates at all? Um, these are questions we we just don't have the answers for. Maybe an historian 30 years from now will look back and say, "Oh, this was what was going on." Type situation. Yeah, but don't, weren't the aren't the interest rates kind of response come from the Fed in terms of inflation as trying to cool inflation? And one of the right. Reasons. So this, that, that's the standard way of cooling inflation is to raise interest rates. By raising interest rates, you decrease the amount of borrowing by companies and people, and therefore you decrease the demand. But the only problem with that is, is twofold. Number one, so much of the inflation is not created, it has not been created by the fact that the, the economy was overheated. It was the supply side. Mm -hmm. The supply side hasn't been able to provide enough product. Mm -hmm. And when you can't provide enough product, prices go up because there's, there's a, a lack of product. So you can listen. Cars, think of, think of it this way. Think about the most simple thing when you go buy a car, right? So when you used to go buy a car and the dealer had 20 of these uh, Chevrolet Impalas in stock for the sake of argument, right? Mm -hmm. You could negotiate with him. Okay, the sticker price is $15,000, so I'll give you thirteen five, And 
guess what? If he had too many in stock, that's what you're going to end up buying it for. Mm-hmm. But if he only has one in stock and he's not going to get the next one until a month from now, he's going to say, what? 15000 Those are my only one. I'm going to charge you 18 and pay it or not. You know, I, I agree with you, Mark. On the other side, though, I do think that this demonstrates how precious uh, carbon-based fuel is to the economy, and it's affecting us so many ways that we didn't even anticipate, for example, fertilizer and so forth. So uh, this, is a, this is a real cr- a worldwide crisis, and perhaps we could talk about that a little further in the conversation. But before we do, I want to I move to uh, Iran and uh, get your thoughts. Right, so Iran last night announced, not officially, but one of the people close to, um, to Khamenei, that Iran now possesses the ability to make a nuclear weapon. Right. Now, stating that in the actual fact is, a, is two different matters. Uh, and there's also a real question of how long it would take them to actually weaponize um, an atomic bomb. And basically, the general est- estimation is from a year and a half to two years. Hmm. And we don't know that they've made the choice to do it. And it's a big, un- big unknown. Um, but the reality is, uh, I think I've been saying on this broadcast for a couple of weeks that I don't see a return to the JCOPA agreement. The Iranians don't want to return. Right. And so we're kind of stuck at this point. I mean, you know, there is no Plan B, which is always the problem. Plan B was a military, the theoretical Plan B. I'm saying there was ever a real Plan B, but the theoretical Plan B would have been a military assault against Iran. Now, leaving aside in the normal circumstances why that would be problematic, to say the least, certainly at a time when there's a land war going on in, Euro- in Europe between Russia and Ukraine, and where at any given moment there's always a chance of something happening where we get sucked in. Right. The last thing the United States wants to be is, is fighting a war with Iran at the same time. Absolutely. On the other hand, didn't the president on this trip say that uh, if uh, that uh, he would Push use force? Push comes to yes, he will... Take military action, and that's what he said. That's what he has to say. There's nothing. There's nothing else you can do to threaten, but to do that. Could the United States do it? Possibly. Yeah. Could it succeed? Most likely. But again, you you want that as the absolute, absolute last resort, especially like I said, in the middle of what's going on in Europe. I mean, this is not normal times. It would be surprise yeah. me though yeah. if uh, uh, Israel didn't have a plan B in mind, uh, some sort of covert operation to. Uh, Stop well, it has, it has ongoing covert operations. There's no question that Israel's been going, been, been undertaking an ongoing covert war against against Iran and the nuclear program. It's managed to delay it. It's managed to uh, derail it a number of times. Um, but the question is, you know, how far can you go with the covert plan? It hasn't stopped them. It's just delayed things quite a bit. And yeah. I think Israel's continuing its covert plan as much as possible. But from covert to overt becomes a whole other matter. Right. And frankly, until Israel has to be very concerned about the number of missiles, not that Iran has, but that Hezbollah has on its northern border. And until Israel deploys its laser defense system, which is uh, at least a year away from being operational, it's it's a very problematic situation. Once it actually deploys a laser defense system, then things change quite a bit, because then in Instead of sending a fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollar rocket against an incoming rocket, you spend five dollars and knock down a rocket. Five dollars yeah. electricity costs. So okay, so uh, let's let's uh, let's move then to Ukraine. Lots of developments with Russia and Ukraine this week. Yes, I mean on some levels it's a war of attrition. It's uh, the Russians have ceased being able to make any forward progress. I've tried a number of attempts in the last forty-eight hours and were unsuccessful. Um, supposedly there was an operational pause that has now ended. Uh, they're being 
hammered pretty well by the uh, new long-range missile systems that the United States has given Ukraine, which were able to to strike at their ammunition depots and at their command and control centers. Uh, but you know, the Russian the Russians just keep on coming, and the question is, will this become a war of attrition? Who can win a war of attrition? The people who care the most, which are the Ukrainians, or the people who have come from a bigger country, which is Russia. Unclear at the moment. The key question is: Will the West, will the West be willing to sacrifice for Ukraine in terms yeah. of continuing support, um, despite Russia possibly cutting off the gas, which we were talking about earlier? And um, you know, that's the question: Are you willing to? Let's put it this way: This is since World War II. There's never been, in my opinion a war that is so clear between right and wrong, mm-hmm. between the good guys and the bad guys. I can't think of anything that has taken place in all these years where it hasn't been more complicated than think, well, but there is no complication here. This is good guys versus bad guys. And, um, hmm. you know, is the West willing to keep it up? You know, uh, what do you make of the uh, Ukrainian aircraft uh, coming from Serbia, coming with Serbian supplies, uh, supposedly, uh, with uh, 11 tons of uh, ammunition going off to uh, Bangladesh or to some, to, uh, <laughs> some area? I, this is purely, that, that was an airline, basically. In other words, yeah. This is this uh, like a charter, you know, the Ukrainian airline can't serve Kiev at the moment, obviously. They have a lot of planes, and they're sitting on the ground, so they're outside of Ukraine, and they're basically... Uh, out to be hired. Yeah, that's what it amounts to. I mean, think about it that way. They have planes and they have pilots that they can't they can't fly in and out of Ukraine because it's too dangerous, obviously, for commercial planes to come in and out of Ukraine. So instead, they're using their airline as a charter service or freight service, whoever wants to, wants to pay. Does it, does I it rage? I don't think there's anything else behind the story. You don't, because it I just mean, raises the question about whether perhaps uh, there's some sort of black market for the ammo and the, the things that we're sending over to Ukraine right now. And uh, it just <laughs> or is this stuff being sold around the well, world? It didn't, the, the flight didn't start in Ukraine. It started over in, in Greece, I guess it was. So, um, or, or Serbia, excuse me, Serbia, which is not exactly, which is the least friendly. Remember, Serbia is on the Russian side. Yeah. It raises. I'll just say that it raises suspicions and suspicions in my mind. We're sending so much ammo and so much over to the Ukraine right now. It just makes me wonder. Perhaps some of it's not being skimmed for the purpose of serve sales across the uh, across the globe. Yeah, just an interesting question. And a little, little always a possibility, but 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 never look for the conspiracy theory. You can always find one. <laughs> I always look for the conspiracy theory, as you probably <laughs> found out. So let's move to the British government. What's going on? Okay, so the British government is having a hard time figuring out who should lead the Conservative Party at the moment. There are many different um, candidates. And part of the Conservatives' problem is they're afraid of elections. And they're afraid of elections because at this point, uh, Brexit has now a 25% approval rating in Britain. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be the least... Um, least popular move of any government in any recent times. So, mm-hmm. And the conservatives are the ones, of course, who pushed it through. Uh, so they're really afraid of elections at the moment. And even though Labor doesn't have any outstanding candidates to run against them, um, the conservatives desperately want to come up with the government without having to go to elections. And So we'll see. It's, in the meantime, uh, Johnson has remained in office. Supposedly he had a big party, a wedding party at his at the at at the prime minister's residence um, outside of London, and they had said this is the way he recently wanted to stay as interim prime minister so he could have his big party. So whatever else you want to say about Boris Johnson, he knows how to 
got a part of it. <laughs> yes, he, yes, he does. And he has a fallback uh, opportunity, too. He's a pretty good columnist, I understand. What's in, in a related way, in some ways, what's happening in Italy? Well, again, the, the Italian, Italian government, which was a coalition government, fell because the, um, I don't know how they describe this, they're basically the anti-government government party. And, um, and they decided to stop supporting the government. They lost the majority in the parliament. The president has refused to accept the resignation, so it's not really clear where it's going at the moment, but more chaos. And so you have, a, you know, you have, you have new elections or some version therein, new governments now in Italy, in Great Britain, and of course Israel is in the middle of a new election campaign. So too much politics going on at the moment against the backdrop of a European war. So it's, it's a lot of this. I take a look at what's happening in the Netherlands and what's happening in Italy and other parts of the world right now. It, there, there's revolts against government. We're receiving a re- revolt here in the United States that's uh, materializing against the government, uh, becoming anti-government. Is any of this related to worldwide climate change types of action? In other words, the people are just being fed up with the rising costs of fuel, with food and so forth, and, and are just not willing no, to take No, sometimes it. it's the opposite. The people are fed up with the fact that governments aren't doing anything about rising climate. I mean, look what's happening in Europe this week. I mean, Britain for the first time in history right now has a red alert for temperatures in London expected to reach almost 100 degrees today. Uh, there are fires all through Portugal and Spain. All have had uh, highest temperatures record in recorded history hmm. in, in those countries at the moment. So I think just the opposite. You have Europeans who are sick and tired of governments not doing anything to deal with with climate, they have a better realization than it seems the United States does of what the future lies. And it gets complicated because now, because of the war in Ukraine, for instance, Germany said they're going to have to bring back a lot of their uh, oil and coal plants, put them back online, which they were trying to, to take a lot of them offline um, because they're afraid they're going to lose the Russian gas. And which goes back to what we were discussing before. They had taken off, offline, gas is, mu- is much cleaner not totally clean, but it's much, much cleaner than either coal or oil. And Germany had taken a lot of them off, offline and replaced it with gas power plants. They unfortunately took the, their, their um, atom, atomic energy plants, nuclear power plants offline as well, which was a tremendous mistake on their part. But, um, but now they're being forced to bring those back because they're afraid if, if Russia cuts the gas supply, they will not have any fuel to produce electricity in Germany. Yeah. And so people are very upset about that. Um, so you have um, you have a lot of you know an, uh, an inability to solve problems. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you know the uh, right now in terms of uh, the United States, there's a 33 percent of the people think that inflation is the biggest problem. 15 percent think gas prices are the economy's nine percent. Uh, the worldwide uh, climate change, the concern levels at 1%. And in previous polls, we've seen that Americans are concerned about climate change, but if it costs them money, money, they don't want to spend it. <laughs> so I think you know. Right, well, that's, 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 that's the point. Everyone is interested in the short term. The problem is that things like climate are long term problems, and they can't be solved in the short term. And it's short term pain for potential, and I say this in quotation marks, potential long term gain. Yeah. And so it's a real problem. It's a problem for politicians. You know, it's, you know, bring, and of course, you know, inflation. You know, there's inflation everywhere in the world right now. Yeah. Uh, but Americans blame it on the U.S. government. Um, but it's a worldwide problem, obviously, caused by some of the things we discussed before. And, um, you know, it's like uh, we, we want our government to solve all of our problems. 
And we don't want a government to be too strong, right? Right. It's this, it's this, this push and pull. Solve my problem, and if it don't be a strong government. So it's uh, human nature, I guess. I would, not, I would say that you know, a lot of us feel to uh, let us solve our problems and get out of the way. <laughs> A lot of people would feel. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. Get out of the way. We're not going to. You're not going to solve the problem of inflation alone, right? There's very little you can do. Um, is the government getting in your way of solving it? No. Well, I would say inflation, that. if it can, if it can be dealt with at all, has to be dealt with on a national level. Oh, absolutely. So, and and uh, what that would require, I think, is, for example, reconnecting the pipelines, starting to pump for oil, do the things that create... Yeah, but there's no pipelines unconnected. That's a myth. No unconnected pipelines. There are pipelines that haven't been built yet. But those wouldn't be on, these wouldn't be online for, for years. So those are not the problems. The problems are, you know, look, the biggest reason why there was an oil shortage was because oil had reached negative numbers. Remember that? Yeah. Um, hold on one second. Amy, hello. Yes, I'm on, on the radio. Bye. Sorry about, Sorry about that. I was afraid it was the airline calling me. Sorry. No worries. Uh, I know you're taking a trip today. Hey, listen, before I let you go, though, uh, any comments at all on China? Yes, absolutely. So China, another one of those boogeymen that we thought was going to take over the world, and then um, they're in really deep economic trouble at the moment. Yeah. Uh, they're, be, between their COVID restrictions that have cut production their problems with their banks, um, growth is way, way down. Uh, China is looking more and more like a very troubled ec economy, and um, which is not good, really. I mean, it's no. on one hand, it's good that we don't have to be afraid of who knows what, but on the other hand, um, China also purchased an awful lot of our products, too. So it's, yeah, absolutely. It's one of these complicated situations. And at least they're rational actors. They're not like Iran, where you're concerned about the <laughs> the way they may react because of religious principles. So, well, Right, no, they're totally rational actors. You know what they want. You know what they want to try to achieve. You know how they want to achieve it. And you just have to counter it as best as you can. And sometimes you can. I mean, one of the, you know, one, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, one of the key points of his trip to the Middle East, uh, Biden I'm talking about, yeah. was to try to reestablish infrastructure projects and other things that the United States and Europeans will be doing as opposed to letting the Chinese take over all of the Middle East and Africa in terms of infrastructure. Right. So the goal was to get um, American and European companies to do infrastructure paid for, in some cases, by the Gulf states. Um, so that's something that, that is going forward. And again, it's a big, huge world it's a big, huge world chessboard between um, the West and China, but China is a rational actor in playing chess. They play by the rules generally. Yeah, uh, They may cheat once in a while, but they generally follow the rules. Mark Schulman, again, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check out the very robust website. Uh, great for kids of all ages, including you and I, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks. Uh, yeah. uh, Okay, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that Stay more right here on the Bob Harden Show. Show. Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, 
medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can get tickets now by visiting the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for uh, uh, Economic... Uh, education. I'm so sorry, Larry. I'm going to help Thank you so much for joining us, Larry Reed. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are a privately funded educational organization with a focus on high school and college students. And through the website, which is fee.org, uh, we provide daily commentary on current issues as well as history and economic topics. And we also host events all over the country, and our focus is to uh, inspire and educate young people in ideas of individual liberty, free enterprise, private property, and personal character. And uh, we do that not only in the U.S., but uh, occasionally in other countries as well. Fantastic organization. Fee.org, if you have a young person in your life, high school or college age, please do introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, you read a very edifying piece. I hadn't even thought about this, but it's so interesting. It's called China's Great Philosophers Would Be Horrified by What Mao and the CCP Have Created. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Well, Americans today uh, sort of have the impression that the communist Chinese uh, regime has been around forever because uh, few people remember what China was like uh, before it came to power Mm. in 1949. I mean, there was a lot of uh, chaos and disruption and violence in the 20th century, um, and still is under this particular regime. But China has a very long history of prominent, influential philosophers that even Americans uh, know of. Certainly Confucius uh, is the best known. 
uh, he lived in the fifth uh, century BC or sixth century, and um, uh, another one is Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. And no matter what regime is in charge in China at the time, the philosophies of these two very prominent Chinese thinkers is still very much in the background. And I think because of it, and because they're so different from what uh, Mao Zedong brought to China and what the communists continue to deliver, I think it's just a matter of time before we start to refer uh, to this period of Chinese communist rule as a kind of aberration in Chinese history. Uh, the philosophies of Lao Tzu and Confucius in particular uh, are philosophies of limited government and respect for the individual and of harmony of interests, and that runs counter to uh, what this Chinese Communist Party regime has been doing for the last 73 years, which is imposing a one-party dictatorship and persecuting minorities and shutting down dissent. In fact, uh, when I read through this, I said, my goodness, uh, what these uh, uh, folks advocated, which is basically uh, the, the uh, true, uh, true search would, should be for individual human happiness, it, it so much coincides with what we read in the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it does. They had much in common uh, with the thinking of the Founding Fathers so many centuries later. Uh, another example of that very thing is the fact that uh, Lao Tzu and Confucius both held that the uh, emperor or whoever the governing authority is should govern to a considerable degree, uh, not only for the benefit of the people, but by their consent. And they both argued that if ever the ruling party should become uh, destructive of those ends, uh, or become a, t uh, a tyranny, then it, it is the right of the people to overthrow them. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party does not concede any right, right. of the people they govern to overthrow the regime. So interesting. Now, you also introduced uh, someone that I've never heard of, uh, someone named Mencius. Yes, Mencius is a fascinating figure. He came along about 200 years after Confucius and Lao Tzu, and uh, he's considered the leading interpreter of Confucius, so he's a prominent, prominent Confucian. Uh, much of what we know about Confucius, in fact, we know because of Mencius, who explored the writings of uh, the great teacher um, considerably. And if anything, Mencius seems to be even more, shall we say, libertarian, uh, because he argued strongly for things like private property and small government and respect for the individual. And um, I mean, he was uh, in some ways a kind of Jeffersonian before Jefferson. Amazing story indeed. So, so right now, of course, uh, a previous guest pointed out that uh, China is going through some real economic problems. It might be that perhaps the people will get their freedom back. Let's we'll wait and see. Well, it's certainly a uh, very uh, you know a positive uh, prospect to hope for. And keep in mind, uh, if if you're inclined to think that oh well, the Communist Party's been in power for so long, it's just going to be there forever. That's what people thought of the old Soviet Communist Party right up to the year 1989 and 1991 uh, that the whole thing collapsed, first in the Eastern European portion of the Soviet Empire and then later the Soviet Empire itself. So uh, the Chinese regime is only 73 years old. The Soviet regime collapsed when it was 74. So, <laughs> um, you know, who knows, maybe in the next few years there'll be an upheaval of some sort and 
Chinese communist tyranny will become a thing of the past. If we don't collapse ourselves, God yeah. willing. Yeah. Larry Reed again, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Fee.org is the website, F-E-E.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's now retired, but he's writing novels, the really good ones, his latest uh, no problem. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by going to the website, choicesocial.us. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's retired. He's becoming a prolific novelist. He's actually uh, written three books. One, uh, Follow the Leader, its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, and its sequel, No Problem, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's a pleasure, Bob. On a rainy day at my home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, which, by the way, is um, ground zero, I think, for the midterm elections. Well, in fact, didn't I read a column that now the uh, Amish are lining up against the Republicans and and to support uh, uh, the Republican conservative message? Uh, Yes, you know, the the Amish in Lancaster County were huge supporters of uh, Donald Trump. And the reason 
is the cultural wars, which are a um, it's a big issue in the midterm elections, which which the Democrats will shy away with because they can't win. You know, the Democrats, uh, according to Politico, there are seven states that are crucial for control of the Senate and Pennsylvania is one. And Politico claimed claimed, uh, you know, a few months ago it was a toss up. Uh-huh. I don't think it is. We ha- what happened was the Democrats helped elect a Emmett uh, Oz, who was supported by Trump, and uh, a, a gubernatorial uh, candidate, Doug Mastriano, who was like a uh, steal. You know, the election was stolen type of uh, candidate, thinking that they were too extreme to be elected. That that the Pennsylvania's electric would then swing uh-huh. to the Democrats and it's not happening. Yeah. And the reason is like the, the Senate candidate, uh, John Fetterman, who was a mayor of a Western Pennsylvania town. He's, uh, he, he kind of looks like a, uh, world uh, wrestling federation, uh, star tattooed, you know, bald head, uh, socialist, Bernie Sanders, socialist, Hmm. claims he's a union guy. Anyway, he had a stroke during the campaign, and he hasn't been out campaigning anymore, so he has a health issue. So it looks like like uh, uh, the Republicans are going to take Pennsylvania wow. because, uh, you know, and the Democrats are trying to, you know, they, they try to make uh, abortion an issue, but it's really not a unifying positive uh, message. They try to make climate an issue but people are realize that you can't go out and buy an electric car uh because it's just impractical i mean what's what's the what's what's the democrat message i mean to me it seems like hey uh you don't want all that money what you want is government support so get on board get your welfare check get your food stamps and forget about your savings i mean and I'm, I'm being facetious, obviously, but that seems like the message, either spoken or unspoken. Yeah, they haven't found a uh, unifying message, a message that would appeal to the silent majority, which makes up the mass of independence. And it has to be pro-growth. It has to be, you know, I'm wondering if, if Barack Obama was running for a Senate seat today, and his message on energy was all of the above, which you remember, that was his message when he was president, uh-huh. you know, claiming that he would also support drilling in addition to green energy. Um, he would be shouted down, I think, by the woke yeah. community. But the general public realizes that we don't have the strategic minerals for batteries. We'd be dependent on China and Russia. Uh, we don't have the electrical infrastructure. You know, you can't drive anywhere. Uh, we, you can't, you can't go to the showroom and get an electric car. And by the way, if you can go to the showroom and get an electric car, your average middle class family cannot afford it. I mean, it's like getting a mortgage for a second home. So, so that message falls flat on its face. So. Um, the Democrats are looking ahead to 2024, I think, in these uh, Senate and House races, 
and they're flailing. I mean, you know, the message this week is uh, Joe Manchin is a bum, and that's not that's not going to win you a national election. <laughs> no, it's not. Bernie Sanders, you know, and they're all fighting. There's a lot of infighting going on right now. Bernie Sanders, Sanders is very upset. Everybody is aghast at what uh, Manchin has done. I'm not sure there's a unifying message that they can come to, um, a unifying message in the Democrat Party. No, no. Uh, that's why I, I call the midterm an experiment, a lab. And, you know, experiments can fail. Right. <laughs> this, I think this experiment is going to end in chaos because, as you point out, the Democrats are eating their own cannibalism within the party. Uh, you know, the Republicans are starting to craft a pro-growth uh, message you know, to to make our economy strong by, uh, you know, cutting corporate taxes, growing again. And I think that can gain traction. But the Republicans really haven't been emphasizing that. They they seem to be just sitting and watching the, you know, let the Democrats destroy uh, one another. Uh, we don't really have to do much. But I think that's a mistake, too, that they you know, you want to, to get that message out two years before the presidential election. And think about the destructive language coming from some. I realize it's not the majority, but like we should get rid of the Supreme Court. And you know, just outrageous types of comments to think about moving away from the Constitution. Uh, these people, I think, are committing political suicide. Well, they are, and they're being aided and abetted by uh, newspapers. I mean, most newspapers really are in the pocket of the uh, Democratic Party. So when, you know, I read the Washington Post, so you don't have to. And I, I read the New York Times for the same reason. If you look <laughs> at their you, headlines Jim. every day, you know, like today, it's climate change. Uh, you know, last week, it was assault weapons and abortion. I mean, so they're, you know, they're an echo chamber of the Democratic Party. And so they're repeating messages that are not gaining traction with the public, which are actually turning a lot of the public off to politics. So, so I mean, here's, here's a, a democratic advantage that is be rapidly becoming a disadvantage. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. In fact, the, it seems to me there, there's a trade-off there between popularity and support and uh, virtue signaling. I think they're really in love with this whole virtue signaling thing about the climate and everything, as opposed to trying to get, garner support uh, for their platform. Yeah, you know, Pennsylvania, they view it as a, a blue state, primarily because of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh can determine the outcome of an election, and they're both very liberal cities, but the entire state has become increasingly conservative. And um, so that's why you should pay close attention to what's going on in Pennsylvania if you're, you know, if you're a political uh, uh, odds maker. Well, in it, fact, it, maybe Lancaster's the epicenter of this, this whole thing. Jim McDagg, again, former Barron's Bureau Chief, hey, get, get a copy of his books. They are really great reads. This latest is no problem. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I had kind of fumbling around with some things here because of the pre-recording process, but it was, I learned a lot. And uh, tomorrow we've got great guests, including Kathleen Pasadomo, Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Governance. Kathleen, by the way, is our state senator and, and future 
uh, president of the Senate. Boo Mortensen uh, will be with us as well. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>